like to ask for your attention for a few thoughts on practice tonight. We've been practicing some specific exercises, body, breath, Vedanas. I'd like to speak about a kind of overarching theme tonight. Sometimes we uh, miss the forest for the trees in some way. So I think it's crucial to get a, a big picture occasionally, zoom out of the detail, the minutiae of our uh, personalized experience and the particular delights or struggles we might find there. Let's go for the big picture of what uh, in Buddhist teaching uh, is the playground, basically. The playground for our experience is, a, is something the Buddhist um, psychology calls citta. Now, the citta is not a thing. It is not a self. It is not uh, a little uh, being somewhere on the inside of my body or my mind. The citta is a strange kind of continuum, it is something that is definitely coherent. It gives a definite feel that it continues. And yet, all it consists of, when we look more closely, um, changes. All we can identify as being part of the chitra is not stable. And most disturbingly, all that we identify with in the experience of the citta doesn't belong to us. Yeah. Translators have tried to escape the bind we are put in by this word um, by translating it as mind or as heart or as heart-mind. It's not so difficult to understand what it means, although it is difficult to give this Chitta, one proper English translation. Imagine uh, the seat of your experience where your mind, your thoughts, your intellect, and where your heart, your emotions, you know, the affective domain of your experience, where they are not separated. So we have something that is before the split between mind and emotion, between rationality and intellect and the heart and its emotions, its movements. The jeta in Buddhist psychology is the term the Buddha uses when he speaks of things like purification, when he speaks of things like development, when he speaks of things like that which gets concentrated when the mind goes still. The jeta is capable of profound intuitions. It is said that the citta is intrinsically pure. If it is troubled by impurities, then these impurities have been coming from outside. Yeah. So, on the other hand, the citta can behave like the proverbial monkey mind. The citta is easily seduced. It can be fall, falling prone to the hindrances. It can be fettered, it can be contracted, it can be scattered. So we have a strange animal, you know? on one hand, capable of deepest intuitions, uh, 
producing subtle, uh, refined states, uh, intrinsically curious and understanding by nature. On the other hand, something fickle, easily swayed by fear, anger, greed, and sometimes lazy, um, often um, jumpy, restless, um, capricious. And this is what we're working with. So, if this was a fair world and you got a fair deal, then you would be given, you know, a clean workbench, clean tools, good light, and a clean object of investigation. But this is not the case, you know. This is a bad story. This is not an ideal world, and it's not, it's not about fairness here. Yeah. So, instead of having a clean working surface, proper uh, protocol of your experiment, clean object of investigation, meticulously defined terms of uh, parameters and good tools, uh, instead of getting that, you're coming down a kind of rickety stair, there's, you know, lighting is dim, um, instruments are all in a mess, you know, you've got grubby hands, and worst of it, the thing you're supposed to be investigating is also the thing with which you're supposed to be doing the investigation, yeah? So this is meditation for you. This is called the chitta. Yeah. This is not really a clean Pali translation, just to be clear. This is more a description of the process. So the mind that seeks to understand itself is the instrument by which we're trying to understand that mind. Yeah. As you can uh, gauge, this is going to be a messy business. Yeah. We're not going to look pr- prim and clean in this. Nobody can really escape the bind that we are trying to understand the functioning of our mind, that which produces uh, happiness and insight and freedom in our heart, with the very tools of a mind that is, by definition, not perfect, that is, by definition, assailed by the very things we're trying to understand. So, what are the jitta's functions? Let me go at that from a non-Abhidhamma point of view. The Abhidhamma has a detailed list, which um, would take a little more than this evening's talk to uh, engage with. Um, uh, But the the Sutta teachings speak of the citta generally as of three functions. This is shorthand, so don't ask me for Pali passages. Um, We're not doing indology here. if you gather the evidence for this, you'll find plenty of corroborative material that proves what I'm trying to say. So the three functions of the citta are sensitivity. This is the most rudimentary function. The citta is that which receives the input, the data of our senses. It is that which processes the data of our senses, and it is that which responds to the data that our senses deliver to the mind. Yeah? So the first function is about basically operating senses, receiving, understanding, and handling sense input, making sense of the world. Rilke, in one of his 
um, inimitable poems that speaks of the the mind as being at the crossroad, the crossroad of all our senses. I'm Kreuzweg aller Sinne. This is pretty much a good point of view. It's at once a sense, the mind has objects, thoughts and images, moods. These are objects and as such they are in relation to the mind as a sense organ, like the taste is in relationship to the tongue or the odor is in relationship to my uh, olfactory capacity. And so the mind has a sense function, but beyond it, being a sense, a sense organ, it is also something which unifies our sensory experience. It holds that sensory experience in a continuum. It is literally, as the poet says, the crossroads where our senses merge. It is the area where we make sense out of what's happening in our differing sense channels. So that's layer one of the citta and its main functions. Layer two is it produces intentions. The citta, uh, in its response to the world and its response to the body, produces impulses. Some of these impulses are called inspirations. Some of them are called wishes. Some of them are called um, uh, the wish that something disappears. Some of them are longings. Some of them are desires. There's many names for uh, what psychology would call uh, forms of intentionality. So the chitta produces these all the time. There's little impulses, forms of intention that keep moving us. Anything to do with wanting to have, anything to do with wanting to get rid of, anything to do with just wanting to experience would be forms of such intention. Any aspiration we may harbor, any longing we may feel, any rejection we're trying to actualize, anything that wants to move from where it is to somewhere else in our mind would be an an example of such an impulse. Buddhist psychology um, has a very powerful term that covers some of these impulses, and they're called sankhara. So the citta produces sankharas. Some of these sankharas have to do with... uh, Intention and other of these sankharas have to do with um, ways we understand the world, ways we create the world. In other words, sankharas are products of the citta when it relates and engages with the world. Layer 3, this is the interesting bit for tonight. Uh, Layer 3 of the mind, of the citta's function, is that it is capable of understanding. Basically, the citta is intrinsically capable of profoundly understanding what's going on. There's something in us that is capable of knowing. Now, the more the citta is preoccupied with layers one and two, with the reception of sense input, what's going on in my eyes, my hearing, my olfactory, my auditory, my tactile world, how I respond to this. Uh, The more I am preoccupied with sense input and the more the citta is preoccupied with producing intentions and impulses, uh, the less it is capable of understanding. It's very simple. 
the more it has to do with managing sense world, the more it has to do with managing its own emotions or managing its own volitions, the less it is uh, capable of intrinsically understanding. One of the reasons why we meditate is to down-modulate the citta's first two layers of activity. So that the third of its functions can come into play in a bigger way. This is nothing particularly new. This is not even particularly Buddhist, to be honest with you. You find such an understanding to be part of the Indian tradition even before the Buddha. People have understood that the more preoccupied the mind is handling sense data or the more preoccupied it is handling its own states, handling its own um, um, inner life, the less it is it has capacity to actually profoundly understand. So all contemplative traditions have understood. Before we can use the mind's depth, before we can use the mind's resonance and its capacity to deeply view, deeply see things, um, before that happens, we need to learn to quieten the mind. Yeah? That's one of the reasons why we meditate. So the chitta is something like a habitat yeah, we're living in there. If we are asked how we're feeling, this is where we go to find out how it feels. Yeah. So think of a think of the chitta as a habitat. Habitat contains the little frogs in the pond. It contains the reed and the sedge. You know, it contains the uh, forgot the little things before they become frogs. What are they called? Tadpoles. Thank you, <laughs> and loads of other stuff which we will not name right now here, but you can easily imagine. You know, it's a happy soup. And in that happy soup, many things go on. So in that habitat, we have that little frog sitting in there, swimming, being part of the habitat, and yet also seeing, experiencing the habitat. So it is through the citta that we actually experience the world. And what we experience as world has an impact on the citta. Now that chitta is a big realm. Nothing in that realm is stable, as I said. Nothing is really reliably uh, continuing in there. Nothing belongs to us. And nothing makes me intrinsically happy. But all of it feels like this is me. This is my story, my world, my life, my existence, my mind, my heart. But most of all, my mind. I've been listening to a few of you today and all of you were telling me about what your mind is doing. And I, I empathize with what your mind is doing, but it is not your mind that is doing this. It is your mind, but it is not really yours. There is something there doing the doing, but it doesn't really obey to you. It doesn't really belong to you. You're basically stewards. You're not owners. We're stewards, all of us. So the job is to make a best, a good job of this. So learning to create a climate in that citta which is most conducive to understanding, to happiness, to freedom. (coughs) Understanding, happiness, freedom. They have a connection. No understanding, little happiness, no freedom. So the The linchpin is understanding. 
what helps us to make the heart free from shackles, what clears the fetters, what clears the misunderstandings, what clears the bad and unproductive habits of our mind is that we understand. First of all, that we understand that what we do doesn't work. Once we've understood that, because we're generally interested in happiness, freedom, and understanding, once we understand that, we usually find ways to stop the bad habit. We usually find ways to stop doing what we have found is not working. Most of us are clever. We, we're, we're, we're kind of, in, in our little shifty ways, we're quite clever. You, know? you may not think of yourself as a greatly clever person or a formidable intellectual, but usually we have, we have, we have our ways, you know. We, we're, it's difficult to keep us stupid. Yeah? Once we find out things, we learn. Uh, once it hurts enough, we're quite curious. Once we've, we're con- really clear that this is not going to fix it, we're willing to even let go. Yeah. So, I have great respect for the capacity of human beings to grow and their determination to wake up. I wouldn't do what I was doing if I couldn't find trust in this. So, creating a climate in which the citta can find understanding, then can find happiness, and then can find freedom is is the declared goal of meditation. It may have differing names in differing traditions, but basically that's what it is about. Learning to make the mind more still so that it becomes more clear, that its capacity of understanding grows. Looking more profoundly, fathoming more deeply what is actually going on, what we wish and what we, how we could go about this, and then trying to make this more continual. Something like mindfulness. You see, we're all mindful, a little bit. You know, the magic about mindfulness kicks in when we start to be continually mindful. The really transformative stuff happens when we are not just episodically, topically, Uh, sort of mindful for a few fascinating little moments and then go over to autopilot again. The real magic, transformative power of mindfulness comes into play when we are learning to stay with something for some time, longer than our habit would have us do it, longer than our wish for gratification would let us stay with this process. Only if we're willing to stay, generally something transformative takes place. So this is what we're training, or it's part of what we're training in meditation. The Buddha says that there are great qualities inhabiting that citta. These great qualities uh, are not mentioned often enough in my uh, books, and they are really, really crucial. They're called the Brahma-viharas, and they have names in English, they've been translated as friendliness or loving-kindness or simply love, metta. They're called compassion or trembling along with. That's the old name for karuna or anukampa. They're called mudita, joy or sympathetic joy. That's the capacity of the heart to be glad. And finally they're called upeka, that is equanimity sometimes also called serenity. It is that which, uh, the emotional quality of that serenity, of that equanimity is serenity as in experience. 
These are, this may surprise, these are relational aspects. I cannot stress that enough. They are not simply meditation objects, as I hope to explain in shortly. They are practices for the human realm. Yeah? They are the Buddha's suggestion how an enlightened being behaves in this world. If you know people who claim to be enlightened, then I would expect them, and I suspect you should expect them, to be basically loving, compassionate, happy, and equanimous. If they're not that, then the suspicion is close that they're probably not enlightened. Yeah. So, now, this is the very far end of the spectrum, So the four Brahma-viharas are the expression of a human being's mind that is completely free from all impurities, that has realized freedom completely. We'd expect such a being um, to be truly loving, truly compassionate, truly joyful, and truly equanimous and impartial. At the other end, this is the interesting bit, and that is often not mentioned, the Brahma-viharas are... Um, qualities of the mind, qualities that cannot be lost. They may be not developed, they may be occluded, they may be uh, clouded or only partially available, but they are there. Every human being is capable of these four uh, expressions of the human heart. According to Buddhist psychology, they are hardwired into our system. That is what makes human beings human. This is a powerful statement. It is one of the most optimistic statements, and it is often neglected. You know, Buddhism is occasionally blamed for being pessimistic, because it harps on the suffering business. Yeah, it's all about suffering, and everything is impermanent. And even when you get what you want, you doesn't make you as happy as you wish it would. And then somebody else comes and takes it away. Or, you lose your teeth and you can't enjoy it anymore. Or, you know, this is what Buddhists are famous for. So apparently these are a pessimistic lot, uh, obsessed with suffering. And even if it feels good, they're trying to take the fun out of your life and make you give it away before it starts hurting or something. This is only the partial truth. There is, there is definite emphasis on turning not away from suffering, because that indeed is what Buddhist teaching tells you, that your freedom uh, and your growth and your capacity to transform comes from your strength to turn into suffering rather than trying to turn away from it. That is indeed true. But there are large chunks of Buddhist teaching which somehow have, have never made it onto the pessimist agenda here in the West. So one of them is the Brahmaviharas. In a notion... Uh, of a Buddhist notion of, of basically culture, then these Brahma-viharas are indispensable. They are indispensable from every notion of health, every notion of development, every notion of well-being, every notion of civilization, every notion of mind cultivation, every notion of happiness. Yeah. Now, this is big. If you look at our health systems... Here in the West, um, if you ask these systems, basically what health consists of, it's pretty, it's pretty sad. Yeah, 
our health uh, structures or our health industry, if I was going to be cynical, um, is preoccupied with uh, distributing money. Yeah? Health and the distribution of funds is a political problem. It's not any of these, any of our institutions that administer, apparently administer health have very little to say if you ask them what health actually consists of. There are a couple of heroic exceptions. You know, there's a few guys who do research in happiness. There's, uh, you know, a few humble attempts to produce things like salutogenesis and things like that. But basically, these are these are far and few in between. On the whole, our health system is a system that tries to minimize misery, isn't it? If we are turning to these systems to actually ask what health consists of, then they're fairly speechless. A few years ago, um, just come back from the States, um, Richie Davison, who has been wiring up Buddhist monks for a number of years and cabling, uh, cabling them up and measuring their meditation experiences and doing fascinating research, which he, by the way, not just keeps in his intellectual ivory tower, but he turns loose on, on uh, child programs. Richie Davison said, the Dalai Lama had uh, kept asking him when he started investigating uh, this, you know, brain research and measuring meditators. Um, is it why? Why are you, you psychiatrists? Why are you psychologists and psychiatrists always measuring problems? Why are you not trying to find out how compassion works? Why are you not trying to find out how happiness works? Why are you so obsessed with problems? Yeah. You have so much science, so much tools, so much research is done on states of misery, unhappiness, illness. Why don't you put the same amount of, you know, uh, scientific artillery to, to the service of, of studying happiness and compassion and well-being and health? Yeah. Interesting approach, isn't it? It makes us smile when we hear that because it's so obvious, isn't it, if you look at it that way. <laughs> So, the Brahma Viharas, basically, are the message that we need to consider if we want to understand something about growth, health, maturity, well-being, development, civilization, happiness. Yeah. These, if you look at all of these topics long and deep enough, you will find at the bottom of these topics for Brahma Viharas, the capacity of the human heart to engage in loving ways with itself and with others, with the world it inhabits and with the body it inhabits, to engage and meet and resonate in, in compassionate and in joyful ways, to be in a situation in which it can find an okayness, even if things are not perfect, a situation in which it says, I acknowledge there is something called yours in this and there is something called mine in this. And I may reach over, but I cannot fix yours completely. If you don't help, I can't make it for you. Yeah? And I have found an okayness and a peace within the midst of unfortunate, incomplete, um, imperfect conditions. Yeah? So these Brahma Viharas, that is important for me tonight, occur on a couple of levels. In fact, I would like, uh, besides having mentioned their expression of a completely freed mind, they are 
in our own experience, at the very bottom of what constitutes our humanity. As that, they are not, they, we don't need to fix them. We cannot lose them. All we can do is we can acknowledge them. As soon as we acknowledge them, something happens. These Brahmaviharas from the most <coughs> base level become now virtues. They become something that we can cultivate. Yeah? So on a secondary level, Brahmaviharas are things we can see in others, things we can admire in others. They are qualities we can discern, both in others and in ourselves, and we can affirm them. We could say, oh, this is a good thing. I wish I had more of this good thing. Or we could say, well, this is a nice thing. It's nice that this happens to me. I'm very glad this happens to me. Yeah? Let me see how I can stay longer in this. Yeah? So they can be cultivated. They can be wished for, as we do when we plant our seed thoughts in the morning. Um, and uh, they can be strengthened. That's the kick about the virtue. It is something you can train in. Not everything you can train in, but things that are virtues, like mindfulness or like Brahma-viharas, can be trained, can be strengthened, can be affirmed, can be made much of, as the Buddhist teachings would say. So the Buddha recommended that we affirm these Brahma-viharas as qualities in our own heart and in our societies. Now before we can affirm them, we need to recognize them. So sometimes we do not recognize them very easily. On a third level, these Brahma-viharas, and this is maybe their most fam famous expression, these Brahma-viharas are meditation exercises. For some reason, this is the part which has become most prominent in the Buddhist commentaries. So if you go to uh, early Buddhist traditions, generally they tell you that uh, the Brahma-viharas loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity are basically meditation objects that take you to jhana. Or, that, or they are instruments to curb your anger or something like that. So the Brahma-viharas, in their most famous uh, recension, so to say, across the tradition, have, have been instrumentalized as particular exercises in meditation or as particular tools to counteract anger or greed or uh, discontent. Um, while I would not want to put in question the use of the Brahma-viharas as meditation objects or while I would not want to um, abrogate their value as, uh, as tools to deeper stillness of mind, it seems to me much too limited a perspective on these qualities of the heart. And they seem to be much too rarefied if we just leave them to be meditation objects. Also, it seems we, we internalize them completely. Yeah? So Brahma-viharas are something that can be lived. Yeah? Loving people, they do something to other people. They do something, not just to themselves, that is important. And in many ways there is a deep correlation with how I meet myself and how I meet others. Yeah? Everybody who has worked with his mind know, will know that there is an undeniable uh, connection between how I meet my own experience and how I meet the experience of others. If I'm scared of what's happening in my own experience, I'm going to be scared if something of that sort happens in you. So, 
these Brahma Viharas as expressions of the heart seem seem in need of acknowledgement. On the lowest level, they seem in need of acknowledgement. This is what is happening in you as well. Even if I'm angry with you, basically I know you're capable of being a human being. If I'm not sure that you're a human being, if I treat you like a reptile and if I suspect you behave like a reptile and if you... Um, then it is very difficult for me to establish a trusting relationship with you. But if I actually have a trusting, uh, a trust that despite your angry face right now, you actually are capable of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, I, I'll, I'll change my tune. You know, I think you just have a bad day. Basically, something, you know, crawled over your liver. Uh, but basically, fundamentally, you're okay. You know, I can I can establish to you as a human being. I can establish a trusting relationship and say, well, you know, this is just she's got her yellow day today or something. Oh, and if I have the trust, because I know deep down, even if I'm angry, I'm still capable of love. I'm still capable of joy. I'm still capable of connecting compassionately. Yeah, receiving. Uh, the pain in the lives of others makes is probably our most profound bond. You know? If you want to create a connection with somebody, it's easiest to do that over something that is painful in one's other's life. Yeah. This is, seems to be the strongest bond that we have. Connecting via joy is also possible, but um, as I don't know the English proverb for it, but uh, um, the French are very clear. They say, "Les mêmes joies unissent mille fois que les mêmes les mêmes souffrances unissent mille fois que les mêmes joies." It's the same. The same suffering bonds us a thousand times more than the same joys. There's something true in this. Yeah? This is an old adage, and this may, for some of you, this may sound hackneyed, but uh, believe me, there is a great truth in this. There's something in the human heart that is deeply capable. Knowing its own pain, knowing its own vulnerability, knowing, it, knowing its own longing for, for freedom from suffering, when we recognize pain in another's life, that something in us connects, yeah? something in us reaches out. Yeah? It reaches out beyond language, beyond religion, beyond culture, beyond generations. Human beings are profoundly capable of connecting with each other's pain and doing powerful things when we connect on that level. So in many ways, the most powerful way of connecting with somebody else comes via the second of these Brahma-viharas, comes via the capacity to resonate with that which is painful in the life of another. That is not pity. Pity and compassion are not the same. If I pity somebody, generally there is I take a position in which I look down on somebody. I pity the poor bastard, yeah, because obviously I got it better. Compassion is something else. The word means that I open this area here and I make a space in my heart for the pain of the other. And the other's pain is allowed to touch me and something in me reverberates with that. It's fascinating. In Buddhist psychology, compassion is an active quality. Yeah? It's, not, um, it's not the sort of 
Catholic martyr Dolorosa uh, type, you know, eternally bearing the pain and, and not doing much about it. Compassion in Buddhist psychology is quite um, resourceful. The Bodhisattva of Compassion, of Lakiteshvara, um, besides having lotus beads and uh, a lotus in his hand and mala beads, he also has got a uh, bow and arrow and a hatchet and is quite capable of engaging with this world. You know? If your response to the pain of others is compassionate, it is not one of passive dismay, just reverberating with the pain. It is coupled with the profound wish to alleviate suffering. That means to help in some way, either to remove the suffering or to at least minimize the suffering, or if I can't, at least to comfort. And even if I can't that, do comfort, give comfort, then at least to not let alone my fellow sufferer, yeah? It is a profound connection which uh, propels me into activity. This is an important aspect. Western tradition has, um, we're mixed in this, you know. On one hand, we have the the compassionate act, you know, the biblical image of the, I forgot what it is called in English, the what is he Good Samaritan, okay, well, yeah, good. Good is poor, actually, at that point, isn't it? It's a compassionate response. It's not just good. Uh, something in his heart makes him get off his horse and tear off his mantle, isn't it, and pass it on and share it. So uh, this is the response to suffering. You do something. You engage with it. You meet it. You're not running away from it. You're trying to help. If that doesn't work, you're trying to comfort. If that doesn't work, you're at least not letting the poor person be in their pain alone. Yeah? So compassion um, has many, many facets, and it is a profound quality. Buddhists are not alone to acknowledge it. Schopenhauer has written a Preisschrift you know, in his, one, on his younger days when he was trying to get money from the Danish Academy. Um, he was uh, in a competitive uh, academic contest and he wrote uh, the foundation, uh, a treatise, about uh, a 100-page treatise, uh, The Foundation of Ethics on the Basis of Compassion. It's a very interesting um, text. Anybody uh, keen to read it, highly recommend it. He's lost his plot a little bit towards the end because he couldn't refrain from railing against his arch enemy called Hegel, who had all the good students who had... Uh, the better jobs and who had the reputation. So he's lost his plot, he didn't get the money. Any. But his text actually is good. And he connects very clearly, uh, you know, this man who is not really famous for his um, great social skills, um, <laughs> you know, writing his diaries in Greek so that his household lady couldn't read them and um, having a few other troubled relationships in his life. Um, this man really not gifted in the social domain, has profoundly understood that the human heart is capable of trembling along with other beings and that some of our deepest connections come from that capacity. Maybe more than from our spontaneous capacity to be loving or to be joyous. Before I can be joyous with people's success or 
uh, the good things, the good fortune that happen in their life, generally I need to have them a little closer. I need to be closer to them. I need to already have a relationship before I can be really happy for them. Yeah. If they're too far away, yeah, great, good on them. Yeah, but it somehow doesn't, you know, the heart doesn't leap. Yeah, sometimes when we see movements or when we have witnessed the pain before, or so then we can easily uh, empathize or resonate with the joy as well or the, the the exaltation. But often enough, the heart seems to connect more easily with pain, you know, more freely across the barriers of uh, culture, religion, uh, background, and even age. So what does that mean for a meditator? Metta, loving kindness, is something that is an interesting one. The, the, the root is connected to, with friendship and with sex. Yeah? Maitri and Maituna are in the same semantic field. Yeah? So it is an interesting term. The, the meaning of it is something that I am capable of doing with all beings, completely impartially. So if I am experiencing the quality of metta, then this quality can go to old people, to young people, to men, to women, to people I know well, to people I don't know well. It is a personal quality, and yet it is directed to something completely transpersonal in the human being. It is meant and it is directed, and yet it is, it is speaking to something that is not personal. It is, to some aspect, in my friend or in my, uh, in my other, uh, that is completely uh, not fixed with the, with the personality of this being. This is an interesting quality. There are, we don't. The, the word love doesn't quite do it justice. The word friend, friendliness doesn't quite do it justice. Um, the Greek agape comes somewhat close to it, but still, it's not quite, not quite there. It is a quality. Uh, if we want to psychologize it, it has a couple of aspects. One of them is it is a turning toward. Yeah, so it or there's something in me that turns toward, and then there is a, a an interest connected with this. So it turns toward, it gets interested, and then it creates a welcoming field. Yeah, so turning towards interest, creating a welcoming field. And the next one is availability. Yeah, so something in my heart is capable of turning. Finding interest, welcoming what's there, and creating availability. Creating a space of availability in which whatever takes place there can be resonated with. This is powerful. As a meditator, this is your movement. If you want to know something about your heart, this is how you meet it. If you go in there and bark, generally the response is not very constructive. If you give orders... If you snarl, if you command, if you observe, usually the response in there is not particularly, say, um, productive. So if you want to know something that you do not know, you best approach it in that attitude. Friendly, welcoming, available, interested, but respectful. 
All great cultures, all great religions have told us and tell us that this is how we should treat strangers, that this is how we should treat guests. Yeah? Islam tells us this. Uh, the Indian traditions tell us this. Atitya Devo Bhave, your guest is God. Yeah? The oncoming person is an expression of God, so treat him, welcome him, and look after him in the way you would treat a God. Yeah? This is a powerful statement. It saved my life in India, you know, when I was a beggar walking for four months with no money through Bihar. It wasn't Buddhists who fed me through the days. It was good Hindu hospitality that fed two Buddhist beggar monks. Yeah, I have a very first-hand experience of the validity of this. And this makes you, uh, basically saves your life. <laughs> yeah, People... <laughs> I will be filled with gratitude until the end of my days for this. You know, I can assure you of that. So, uh, people who are capable of meeting that which is strange or unfamiliar with an interested, welcoming, available quality of mind are greatly appreciated and make this place a much better world. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, if we can do that to our own heart, if we can do that to our own experience, much is one in our meditation. If we can do that to other people in our life, they will be grateful. They will respond in kind. They will help us to build a community or a collective or a society in which that quality of mind is the norm or is, is the tenor in which human beings uh, live their relationships. You notice that in a business in a community, when that is happening, it's very nice. It's very attractive to go there. Guests will be many and plentiful. Yeah. Let me say a few things to the fourth one. Um, no, let me go through the list. So the second and the third are basically forms of resonance of the heart. The second one resonates with the painful aspect in the experience of something other than myself, or with the experience within myself. There is such a thing as self-compassion. Yeah. Basically, it's the same compassion you have for other people who are hurting, when you meet hurt in yourself. Western people, being a little more complicated and maybe a tad more neurotic, uh, will need a new word for this. So the word self-compassion has come uh, on stage. But basically, it's compassion, Yeah for self or for others. The whole stuff is indivisible. But for us, maybe as a little reminder that we can do that for ourselves, that we too are human beings and we too deserve being treated kindly and compassionately. So we've, we've now have books and teachings around self-compassion, probably because we need it. So compassion is a form of resonance and mudita, the word comes from pamodati, to be joyous or to be able to find gladness. Uh, these are two forms of resonance, one with pain, one with joy. Yeah? When good things happen in other people's lives, often our first response is not uh, joyous serenity, but it is jealousy, spite and envy. Yeah? So sometimes we're not actually uh, going for mudita straight away. It seems to be uh, well, it was my turn for promotion, or why did she get that when I'm here longer? Or, you know, she, 
he's not really that great about it, you know, and yet he gets all the kudos. So sometimes <clears throat> that mudita seems to be somewhat hesitant in manifesting in our life, you know, if you're, particularly in a competitive situation um, where we all look left and right and studiously compare and make sure that nobody goes farther than we go. Uh, if somebody else gets the goodies, generally there is a, a little moment of shock and then occasionally this is uh, followed not by genuine gladness at their success but by uh, something miserly that comes up and says, well, actually, you know, I guess you know the feeling. So both of these qualities, the capacity to be joyous and the capacity to resonate with pain have something to do with our willingness to go along in the heart, yeah? With the space, we open and we let somebody in and then we are willing to feel what they feel. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Um, for meditators, this is important, you know. Feeling compassion for what is painful inside is a great skill when you meet pain in your life. Feeling the capacity to resonate with what is good or what seems to be coming uh, more developed or what seems to you know, open, what seems to blossom is a great, great help in our practice. Yeah? Another kind of terse, okay, good enough, well done. You know? But actually a genuine empathetic capacity of being joyous at something good. This is a very useful skill. It's a useful skill for ourselves and our, as meditators, it's a useful skill for our skills as uh, human beings, being with others. Um, and the last one, upeka, the word comes from a verb called ikshati, to view. Upa ikshati means to view across, or view down and across, basically. It speaks of impartiality. It is a capacity to see, to have a, a panoramic picture of something, to not be taken by one side. So, uh, Upeka is a powerful, uh, restful place in which I can leave responsibility for what is happening, not just, I pull not all of the responsibility towards me, but I leave some of the responsibility for what is taking place with the other with my friend or with whoever is part of my life at this moment. And uh, I acknowledge there is ownership of, of both self and of other. This is an important part. Yeah. If you have a tendency to helping syndromes and burnouts, this is the quality you need to practice. Yeah. This is the quality which helps you to stay with yourself and stay uh, healthy in the midst of overwhelming need or overwhelming problems, or over unfixable situations which you may even attract. Yeah? So, upeka is also a relational quality. It's not a resignated, well, sorry, can't help, too, too bad, I'm afraid, you know, office hours are through. You know, it's, this is not upeka. This is called resignation, that's a different brand. So these qualities, all four of them, have something to do um, if you want to m use a profane word, then use the word empathy. They're kind of profound, empathetic responses of the human heart. 
Uh, I quarrel with psychologists whether they are emotions. Generally, professional psychologists insist that these are comp- complex emotions. I, uh, I guess I'm more, more of a Buddhist on that point, and I, I would hesitate to equate them with emotions because as emotions, we turn them into states because emotions are states, and as soon as you have them states, we have lost them on the most basal level. Yeah? Those foundational capacities of the human heart to respond to experience of oneself and others in in these four ways, if we turn them into states, we have basically lost them on the most profound level. So that's why I hesitate to agree to uh, academic psychologists' notion that these are complex emotions. Um, because I sense if we do that, we lose an important part of them. Let us have a look at what opposes these Brahma-viharas, because they have enemies. And it may be, to let me end with, have a, a kind of look at what the enemies are. Generally, these Brahma-viharas have two enemies. Uh, one that is a close enemy, said to be the enemy that waits, attacks and ambushes you straight when you come out of your house door, you know, a place where you still feel safe, you get attacked when you don't expect it. That is the close enemy. And the far enemy is the enemy that catches you at the great distance in the mountains. You know? When you're far from home and from safety, that's where the far enemy catches you. So let us look at the <laughs> enemies of these Brahma-viharas. The <clears throat> metta has one of its qualities, the capacity to see what is good and beautiful in somebody else. And the far enemy of metta, which resembles our desired quality, always a little bit, the far enemy, uh, the close enemy of metta is is greed. Yeah. Like metta, greed also recognizes the good in things and in people. Yeah. But it recognizes uh, with the wish to instrumentalize that good. Yeah. It wants to have it. It wants to own it. It wants to do something with it. So the close enemy of Metta is greed. Uh, the far enemy of metta is ill will. It is the opposite of welcoming. It is the opposite of wishing well to somebody. It is wishing bad things to somebody. It is wishing uh, ill will, I think, is the clear English word for it, biapada. I think that's fairly obvious. Yeah, The close enemy is for sometimes dangerously close, Yeah. If you've practiced with metta for a little while, sometimes you notice, actually, um, this is not just metta. <laughs> There's something sticky in there. Yeah? Something has kind of crept in. Yeah? The far enemy is very clear. It's just the opposite. Yeah? It's a diametrically opposed quality of mind that uh, is the threat to that quality. Obviously, these enemies are in some way excluding the quality of metta. So greed can exclude the quality of metta and ill will completely exclude it. The near enemy of compassion is something called um, dismay. It is falling into the same pit like the one who is assailed by suffering. It's kind of commiseration maybe or it's um, it's um, consternation would be an English term for it. It's basically you share the emotional power, but you lose your own ground in it. Yeah, 
So instead of pulling somebody out of the pit, you kind of jump in with him and feel miserable, share his lot, but basically uh, you're not of, of not great use in this. Yeah? So the uh, Pali uses, um, um, the word is gehasita domanasa, which means uh, the, the household, householder's, Householder's misery. Household, yeah. So, so you basically join the sorrow, you know, rather than keep uh, a ground from which you could lend a helping hand or from which you could uh, empathetically respond, but in an active way to the pain of the other. The opposite, the far enemy of compassion, is uh, cruelty. Uh, the direct opposite of compassion. No. Do not think that cruelty is something only bad people do who lock up folks and uh, torture them. You know, cruelty, we're all quite capable of cruelty. You know? Cruelty can consist in many, many things. Uh, it can, sometimes it consists in omission. We don't respond. You know? We just don't see her when she comes. She looks for eye contact, she wants to greet, she wants to say, she wants to be acknowledged that she's here. And we just pretend she's not there. Yeah? Or he crawls up and wants to apologize and we just give him the cold shoulder. You know, he's frozen out. Well, this guy is going to be on ice for the next three days you know, before, I, oh, before I turn an ear to his apology. Yeah, yeah we can be in cruel in many ways. Yeah? Generally, one of the cruelest ways is not helping when people are in pain, when people are helpless, when people are in need, or when people are dependent. Mudita. The close enemy to Mudita is uh, the party spirit. It wants to just be happy. It doesn't matter what you're happy with. I just want to join in the good mood. I just want to join in the good feeling. Something is being fated here, wonderful. Whatever it is, I'll be part of it. So there's a kind of Wanting to join in, wanting to kind of ride the wave, but not actually connecting with it properly. Yeah. Um, it. I don't know what you could call that in English, but uh, maybe you think of something. It is. Uh, Thais have a very good saying. They they kind of distinguish between different types of friends. So you have friends for eating, and you have friends for dying. Yeah. Friends for eating. Pyun Kin, you have many, many. You know, you have something to eat, you will have friends to eat with. Yeah? As soon as you have something to eat, somebody will come and sit and share and join in. Yeah? Um, maybe less, with more hesitation over here in England, but uh, if you know Thailand and you know how important eating is there and in a culture where the greeting is when you meet somebody, not, hello, how are you doing, but have you eaten already? <laughs> yeah. You can imagine that eating is an important social bonding act. So, so anyway, in such a culture, friends for eating are easily found. Friends for dying are not so easily found. You know? if, it goes, if it comes to die, basically, um, you know, most of your friends for eating will have left. So this distinction is very well made in Thailand. So this is a very good explanation of the party spirit. People who are just in for the ride. The diametrically opposed enemy to mudita is an interesting quality. It's called arati, and arati is one of Mara's daughters. Yeah? So Mara has interesting daughters, 
uh, also has got sons. So the Mahayana tradition, Mara also has sons. So we'll talk about them maybe some other day. Uh, Arati is a particular uh, daughter. She is about discontent. You know, her profession is grumpiness. She is miserable. She is not going to smile. You know? Discontent is a great killer of joy, is a great diametrically opposed trait of mind that can be really, really uh, clamped down on the joy in your life. You know? Sorry, no smiles before 10 o'clock. You, know? uh, you see that. Have a look at stations in the morning. You know? People full full of a mixture of willful determination and the, the unwillingness to respond to human interaction, to human presence. Just don't give me any joy here. Yeah? Just let me go about sourly and do my thing. It's bad enough I have to do it. Don't expect any pleasantries from my side. Yeah? Um, maybe you know that in your own heart. This is possible that you have encountered that in your own heart. A certain unwillingness to resonate. Yeah? Sort of a wooden type of feel inside. Uh, it's a pretty much a downer on meditation. If you go into one of these, it's very bad for concentration. It's very bad for understanding. It's very bad for dexterity in your mindfulness. This kind of thing has a stale quality. Yeah. So, if you're flirting with Arati, with Mara's daughter, this one is bad for meditation. She's not going to make you happy. Yeah. Promised. I believe one who has walked many, many hours uh, in the arm of Mara's daughter. Uh, particularly this one. There's a few others I've also walked, but this one I have most regrets about, to be honest. Upeka. The near enemy of Upeka is indifference. Very close. Yeah, but very different. Indifference means I don't care. It means I'm not resonating. I'm not available. It means you don't matter. That's what it is. It's not... I empathize and I recognize there is responsibility for you and for me in this. Yeah. Indifference is, doesn't count, you don't matter, I don't care, thank you very much. Yeah. This is the very clear enemy, and it is definitely an enemy that in, in our time is quite rampant. Yeah. We have so much to process, and we have so much, um, we are so much trammeled with uh, input, both information and sensory wise that we often uh, just find a numb, indifferent as a refuge. We just go someplace where it doesn't hurt anymore, where we're not having to respond anymore. And we're quite deadened in that. So indifference is the near enemy of upeka, of our equanimity. And the far enemy, we already know, it is both greed and ill will. The far enemy of upeka is uh, the, the two enemies of metta as well. So consider, the honest question is not whether you have these. The honest question is where you have these. So if you're not in a perpetual stage of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and uh, equanimity, it is likely that you meet some of the enemies. And you'll be better prepared to meet these and deal with them if you recognize their faces, if you recognize their um, appearance. So let me stop for tonight. Consider four Qualities of Brahma Vihara, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. 
Um, these occur on three layers in our experience. On one layer is things we cannot lose as fundamental traits in the human mind. They occur as virtues which we can strengthen and cultivate as we are encouraged to and as meditation object which we can take up in our meditation practice and strengthen and make immeasurable. Yeah? We're reciting in a moment the four Brahmaviharas, which are also called Apamanyas, the immeasurables. So what makes a feeling of metta in my heart immeasurable is that I refine this by meditation to make it expansive so that it becomes boundless, basically. Enemies? You've heard them enough for today. Good. Thank you. Good. Let's do a minute of silence and then recite our Brahmaviharas in Pali. I wonder whether we can get some more light, maybe. Great. Thank you. Veta Sangatina Jeta Sai Kamdi Sang Parita Vavi Aratitata Tutiang Tata Tatiang Tata Jatu Tang Itiu Tamadu Tiriang Sabadi Saba Tataya Saba Vantang Lokang Meta Sagate 
ಪುಲ್ಲೇನ ಜೇತಸ ವಿಪುಲ್ಲೇನ ಮಹಾಗತೇನ ಆಪಮಾನೇನ ವೀರೇನ ಭಯ ಪಾಜೇನ ಪಾರಿತವಾವಿಹರತಿ ಕರುಣಾ ಸಹಗತೇನ ಜೇತಸ ಏಕಂದಿಸಾಂಗಿತವಾವಿಹರತಿ ತತ್ತಿಯಾಂ ತತ್ತಿಯಾಂ ತತ್ತಚತುರ್ಧಿಯಾಂ ಸಾಬದ್ಧಿ ಸಾಬಾತ್ತಾಯಸಾಬಂತೋಕಾಂಕರುಣಾ ಸಹಗತೇನ ಚೇತಸ ವಿಪುಲ್ಲೇನ ಮಾಗ ಪಮ್ಮನೇನ ವೀರೇನ ಭಯ ಪಾಚೇನ ಪಾರಿತವಾವಿಹರತಿ ಮುರಿತ ಸೇನ ಜೇತಸ ಏಕಂದಿಸಾಂ ಪಾರಿತವಾವಿಹರತಿ ತತ್ತಿಯಂ ತತ್ತಿಯಂ ತತ್ತೂತಂಗಿತಿಯೋದಮ್ಮದು ತಿರಿಯಂ ಸಾಬದ್ಧಿ ಸಾಬಾತ್ತಾಯಸಾಬಂತೋಕಂ ಮುದ್ದಿತ ಸ ತೇನ ಜೇತಸ ವಿಪುಲ್ಲೇನ ಮಾಗತೇನ ಆಪಮಾನೇನ ವೇ ನಯಾಪೇನ ಪಾರಿತವಾವಿಹರತಿಯುಪೇಕಾಸಗತೇನ ಜೇತಸ ಏಕಂದಿಸಾಂ ಪಾರಿತವಾ ತಿತ್ತಿಯಂ ತತ್ತಿಯಂ ತತ್ತಚತುರ್ಧಿಯೋದಮ್ಮದೋತಿರಿಯಂ ಸಾಬತ್ತಿ ಸಾಬಾತ್ತಾಯಸಾಬಂತೋಕಾಸಗತೇನ ಜೇತಸ ವಿಪುಲ್ಲೇನ ಮಾಗತೇನ ಪಮಾನೇನ ವೀರೇನ ಭಯ ಚೇನ ಪಾರಿತವಾವಿಹರತಿ Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.